Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Nilish Mehta will discuss the role of policymakers in SMB growth. Nilish is the founder and CEO of Independent Bridge Consulting. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Nilesh. Hey, Taekwon. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate being on Prima's podcast series. Very welcome. So for starters, President Biden recently spoke about the threat of monopolies. What are your thoughts? This is actually an area where Donald Trump and Joe Biden agreed, one of the few areas, actually. You know, we've seen a lot of pricing collusion during the pandemic, and it's also created a less competitive environment that manifests in several forms, such as suppliers, you know, being paid less. So pricing margins for a lot of these monopolies are at all-time highs. The piece that consumers notice is inflation. Due to economies of scales of these monopolies, they've been able to kind of control the market. And, you know, I think policymakers across the aisle should be concerned because they're stifling competition through aggressive M&A. So they're actually going out, buying smaller mid-market type competitors and adding them to their portfolio. And this creates kind of a ripple effect, you know, and we've seen it during the pandemic. If one of these monopolies has some type of bottleneck, we've seen it actually being passed down to consumers. So I think it's, it's concerning. And I think both Republicans and Democrats can agree that, you know, it's, it's being passed down to consumers and, you know, it hurts innovation. How exactly do monopolies hurt free market economies and contribute to wealth gaps and equity issues? Great questions. I think there's a lot of different opinions that could come from that question. But in my opinion, there's less urgency to innovate, whether that's through technology or even investing. And ultimately, long term, this hurts consumers. And, you know, the big piece for me is that we see, you know, wealth gaps. We see a lot of attention paid to Jeff Bezos. His net worth has increased exponentially during the pandemic, while, you know, the average American has been hurting. You know, the federal government has addressed some of that through direct payments and other forms of compensation, but, you know, long term, that can't continue. So, you know, and we've really seen that wealth gaps have increased to at an all time high. And the pandemic has kind of also shown that you know, equity issues are at all time highs too. So what does that mean? If uh, if you're in a lower income neighborhood, you have less opportunity to get that aid, to get some of those incentives that we see monopolies have access to. One topic that sticks out to, I think, everything, everyone, is when Amazon was looking for, you know, to build a new headquarters, we had municipalities, we had large cities, Everyone was pretty much doing their bidding so that they could attract Amazon. But, you know, we don't really see that when, you know, members of black owned business community or the veteran owned community or women owned businesses are trying to open businesses. We don't really see competition for those type of demographics. And I think ultimately that hurts business in the long run. In what ways do you feel black women and veteran owned businesses may be effective to combat wealth gaps and equity issues? Great questions. I think these three groups 
experienced a lot of challenges, some systemic and some, you know, created because of discrimination. So I'll just talk about the first demographic, African-Americans. It's been proven African-Americans face a lot of discrimination when securing mortgages, loans, even in education. You know, employment's a big piece because there's been various studies done by academics when an African-American sends out their resume, even if it's comparable to their white colleagues, if there's an African-American sounding name, they're much less likely to get a call back. And McKinsey actually did a large study on some of these socioeconomic impacts. There's a great opportunity to create wealth, not only for African-Americans, but for the greater country. So some of the statistics McKinsey cited, you know, additional support for Black-owned businesses have potential to create $190 billion in wealth. I think that's a staggering number, you know, and I think there's also a huge opportunity to create wealth. They cite the number at $290 billion. So these are massive numbers. And, you know, they also looked at the equity issues I kind of spoke about earlier. There's an alarming statistic to me that 5% of African-Americans have equity in businesses versus 15% of their white colleagues. So, you know, I think these are concerning to me. I think it shows a pattern of widening equity in, you know, in starting businesses. And I think ultimately it hurts communities because there's challenges in securing these funds and starting businesses. You know, we just, we think back about the Amazon example, right? And how cities and different states were fighting for Amazon. You know, I think if we have some competition and we get some more equity for Black-owned businesses, we'll see actually a lot of grassroots wealth and we'll see a lot of improved outcomes for communities. So I think, you know, that's how I would look at the African-American demographic. I think, you know, women have different challenges. We've seen kind of some of these challenges come out through the pandemic. You know, there's been large volume of mothers leaving the workforce because they've had to care for their children or their families or even sick parents. So, you know, I think that's kind of challenging in itself. When you have such a large segment of the workforce just leave, it creates a lot of challenges. And I think, you know, women-owned businesses are doing really well. They generate about $1.7 trillion in sales, and they employ nearly 9 million people. So I think, you know, that's a great opportunity to kind of level the playing field. There's definitely wealth gap between men and women. I don't know what the exact figure is, but it's like 77 cents. A woman earns 77 cents per every dollar a man earns. So we see, you know, that inequality in pay. But, you know, I would I would be shocked if we don't also see that level of inequality in securing funds for their business, similar to the situation of African-Americans, probably less severe or less adverse. But I would also assume that it's also, you know, a challenge. And when we think about veterans, they face similar challenges, right? You know, usually a lot of the time they don't take advantages of the benefits afforded to them as part of their service. So we see, unfortunately, that when they leave the service, they're not really getting great employment. So they're usually underemployed or, you know, they're not really put in a position to gain skills that could lead to real world employment. Now, we do see companies kind of making an effort to you know, reduce that gap. There's some programs in place, but, you know, I think when you look at it holistically and at a grand scheme, there's still a lot of systemic barriers for veterans. And I think 
there's been a lot of success in veteran-owned businesses. They make up about 6% of business owners, and they contribute about $100 billion in receipts, and they employ about 4 million people. So they are making an impact. I think there's more opportunity for them to make a greater impact. And I think, you know, obviously, we want to do right by our veterans, but I feel like there's a lot more opportunities. And I think really improving prospects for these three demographics, particularly to create businesses, would do a lot of good for communities at grassroots level. How can initiatives bring politicians together as a rallying cry to strengthen our economy? Great question. So I think no matter what your political beliefs are, we all want to see the country doing well and we want to see the country prosper and succeed. So the United States is going to face a lot of external pressures in the next 20 years. We obviously see and hear the rise of China every day, and that threat's not going to go away. So it's very important that we collectively bring solutions that are win-win, whether you're a red state or a blue state or no matter what your political ideologies are. You know, we all want to see the economy doing well and we want to see people flourish. So I think in my opinion, we would want to do a lot more to strengthen local communities. When local communities fail, we see a lot of disparities. We see less tax revenues. We see um, schools shutting down. We see a lot of businesses close. And I think that's the worst case scenario. So I think it really starts with strengthening communities at a grassroots level. Um, now, there's there might be differences of opinions on how we achieve that. But I think, you know, when we look for commonalities, again, we, we all want to see the country succeed. We all want to see people prosper and do well. You know, so obviously the cities are financial hubs. We're going to see them continue to increase their wealth. You know, I think there's still equity issues in cities, but, you know, I don't necessarily see threats of cities shutting down. Whereas in local communities, they might be dependent on a single business. In rural communities, they depend on farming, they depend on meatpacking, they depend on supply chain and logistics. So, you know, it becomes very dependent on certain economies. And I think, you know, the government can do a lot more to kind of reduce that dependency through strengthening small businesses, making them, you know, more able to secure capital, more likely to succeed. I think those are huge opportunities for politicians on both the aisles. I think I don't have the answer exactly on, you know, what makes sense for some communities. Obviously, there's no one size fits all approach on how to solve some of these challenges. But I do know that when certain municipalities or towns shut down, that has devastating effects because in effect, you're losing a lot of the productivity and efficiencies of the land. And when you start to lose that, you know, you get more dependent on smaller parcels of land. And, you know, I think for me, that becomes a challenge in itself. We want to have, a, you know, a, a distribution of success from our land. We want to use, utilize the land successfully. And without small businesses, without having communities in place, right, farmers need to go somewhere right to pick up hardware to go to the diners you know they need to send their kids to schools but if there's not enough people to support you know those basic functions then 
it becomes more difficult for them to farm and produce and utilize the land. So for me, I think it, it just becomes about, you know, identifying where there are vulnerabilities. I look at rural spaces as huge vulnerabilities because we do want to see that, that land being utilized effectively and contributing to the economy. But if they don't have the basic infrastructure, such as schools and, you know, community areas where they can shop and, and do other things, you know, that places a lot of stress. And ultimately, they may decide to move or they may decide to shut down their farm or business or whatever else. So I think that's a challenge in itself. But I believe that's a rallying cry both sides of the aisle can agree on. It can be said that COVID-19 has had an adverse impact on small and medium-sized businesses. Can you discuss why we should be concerned about this? Great question. So small and medium-sized businesses are the backbone of the country. You know, not many companies are Fortune 500 companies. It's actually a very small segment. It's roughly around 97% of businesses fall into that small and medium-sized category. So if I'm an economist, if we see failure in that area, it's facing a lot of stress on the economy and actually placing a lot of stress on the tax base because, you know, different states, different municipalities, even cities depend on these small businesses to generate tax revenues and contribute to the schools, contribute to public health, contribute to infrastructure. When that base goes away, you know, you're really pressed to generate that money elsewhere. So that's primarily how I look at it as tax revenues. But I think in another sense, Small and medium-sized businesses provide a lot of support for their communities. They typically employ members of the community. They are creating jobs. They're generating not only the taxes, but they're generating paychecks for their employees. So that's a troubling piece. We've seen a very high number of small and medium-sized businesses close. Yelp actually did a really big study on it. And, you know, I think the results have been troubling, you know, say the least. So, you know, we want to see small businesses doing well, but they're not doing well today. That's for a lot of different reasons. But the bottom line is when small and medium-sized businesses shut down, it kind of takes away a tax base that, again, state, city, and local municipalities depend on. And when that tax base goes away, a lot of public, you know, infrastructure, education, all that suffers. And you know, it also suffers because a lot of people might lose their jobs. So then you have the same groups going after the same jobs. It just it just becomes kind of a snowball effect. I don't think necessarily we're in that situation because there's been a lot of strong support from the federal governments, state governments that have been, you know, creating programs such as PPP. They've also been, again, creating incentives for workers who were laid off or impacted because of the pandemic. So we're not really seeing a lot of those adverse effects today, but it's not realistic that the federal and state governments can continue to support not only businesses, but people at this scale forever. So it becomes a challenge. And if we continue to see small and medium-sized businesses, I think, you know, my personal opinion is we've seen the worst of it. I think President Biden will have some wins with uh, the recent job reports that were also revised. So I think the economy is trending upwards, and I think that's a good sign in a short-term sense. But in a long-term sense, you know, again, we still will see a lot of pressures from 
small and medium-sized businesses because of monopolies, because they're able to undercut, they're able to, you know, deliver their goods for a lot less, for a lot cheaper. It becomes a challenge for small and medium-sized businesses to stay open because there's going to always be that continual threat. Lastly, can you discuss a few specific investments that government and municipalities can make to increase prosperity? Thanks for that last question. There's a few ideas I have in mind. I don't think anything's really radical. I think continuing with grants, continuing with microloans, incentivizing businesses to bolster manufacturing capabilities. I think we've seen a lot of threats, you know, external threats. And it's important that the United States continue to manufacture. That's going to be a critical piece for the next 20 years. I think that will kind of paint a story of whether the United States can maintain their economic growth and not only their growth, but their dominance as the world's only superpower. So we need, you know, I think we need better capabilities on the manufacturing front. So I would like to see the government kind of offer incentives for Black-owned, women-owned, veteran-owned businesses where they can build plants, where they can train, they can train employees on these new technologies. Automation is not going away. So we need to live with it. We need to embrace it. But we also need to start putting the American worker in a position where they can upskill, they can learn the new technologies. It's only a matter of time until a lot of low-wage jobs would be automated through machines or technology or even software. And that threat's going to remain as part of the general trajectory we're moving in. So I think it becomes more of a question of upskilling people, giving them technical training, putting them in a position where they can succeed in this kind of modern day workforce that we're moving towards. Besides the manufacturing piece and, you know, providing African-Americans, women-owned business owners and veteran-owned business owners with these opportunities, I think we also need to educate people more. We need to start making trainings and certifications more affordable. I think, you know, four-year college programs are not really realistic for most of the population. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So the more we can do to kind of encourage employers to take care of their employees, you know, those are going to have positive results, whether they send their employees back to school or they, you know, provide some type of grant or reward or certifications, technical training. I think those are all going to provide a lot of opportunities for people. We have an enormous number of job openings. The problem in the Delta that we have today is we just don't have enough folks to fill those jobs. So, you know, instead of hiring people or finding people to move to different areas, we got to focus on doing what we can with what we have. And I want to see companies do a lot more to kind of train their people to you know, re-educate their people, to upskill them and put them in a position where they win. But yeah, I think, you know, obviously there's going to be continued threats internally. And, you know, we just got to realize that it's not going to go away. And the best way to combat that is to actually put our people in a position where they can win, where they can have high paying jobs, and, you know, we also got to be realistic and honest that automation is here to stay. You know, whatever type of politician you are, 
you know, you can't stop that. That's just part of being a free market economy. We have technology innovation. That's part of the life cycle of business. And, you know, the way we combat that is through grants, incentivizing smaller businesses so that, again, they're training, they're upskilling, and they're educating their workforce so that they can handle the pressures of a new modern day business cycle. And also, you know, I think we should treat small businesses like state, city, and local municipalities treated Amazon. I mean, there should be tax rebates. There should be tax abatements. There should be various programs in place that can kind of help businesses compete with the Amazons of the world. And not to say that, you know, I've used Amazon a lot (laughs) throughout this podcast, but Amazon does a lot of good things. But, you know, as Jeff Bezos says, Amazon will go bankrupt one day. So we can't depend on these monopolies to stay in place forever. And that's why we need to do more to kind of move away from monopolies and incentivize these smaller and medium-sized businesses so that, you know, their local economies can flourish and the people in them can flourish. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.